got a t-shirt with bloodstains all over it, maybe laundry isn't your biggest problem right now. <laughs> I remember the day the candle shop burned down. Everybody just stood around and sang happy birthday. And a security guard came over and said, you're gonna have to move, you're blocking the fire exit. As though if there was a fire, I wasn't gonna run. <laughs> Make love to the right woman. Johnny is beautiful, beautiful. I mean, the last time I made love to my wife, it was ridiculous. <laughs> Nothing was happening. I looked her, I saw it's the matter. Can't you think of anyone either? <laughs> I never learn, you know? Like a waitress will bring my meal. Hey, enjoy your meal, you too! But you don't have one, do you? I'm a doofus! If you do eat, enjoy when you eat it. If you have a break or something later, if you get an opportunity, that's all I'm trying to say. That's all that I'm driving at, really. Hello, welcome to Comedy Think Tanked, a podcast with Leonard Kimball and Nick Gordon, two comedians who know how to take a drink and have a thought. Sit back, get comfortable, and enjoy. Now, whether they're ready or not, here's your host, Leonard and Nick. Hello, welcome to Comedy Think Tanked podcast. Uh, it's Nick Gordon, along with my great friend, Leonard Kimball. Hey, Nick, how are you? I'm awesome. 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 Today awesome. was today was a good day. Yeah, for what, sure. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. We got to meet uh, a, a true veteran legend of comedy, humor. I don't know. Oh, I, uh, there's like a difference between comedy and humorist or comedian and humorist or... yeah we touched on it slightly but yeah. um you know it's something you can you can you can google yeah and, and if Go you want if you want an actual working definition <laughs> of stand-up comedy versus humorist yes um but um this this man is he's a main humorist he's a new england humorist he's 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 iconic and it's tim sample and right. we had the pleasure of sitting and talking to him and it was uh Incredible! Like I, it was, it was just mind boggling. Like he started talking, and I didn't want to make any noise on the microphone because, because <laughs> like, I don't want like no one wants to hear me right now. <laughs> With the way he just started off, I'm like, wow, okay, yeah, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. It's like he he flipped a he flipped a little switch, uh-huh. and he went into performance mode. But yet at the same time, it was it was a conversation. Right, it was a conversation, and he's just that fucking good. Yeah, it's <laughs> he's a pro. He's yeah. he's a 40, 50 year veteran, and he's a pro. And uh, it was a pleasure having a conversation about comedy with him and his his roots, his upbringing um, in the uh, in the art uh, of. Uh, I mean, for, for lack of a better word, stand up. You know, it, yeah. it's, that's you know he's he's been a uh, musician as well, and he's done many other things, but. Um, He's been in it for fifty years. Well, yeah, he started talking about how uh, I mean, as a kid, as a kid, and so whatnot. I guess but then he got 50. into band. Like I don't know if we were recording at this moment or not, but he was talking about being in bands. Okay, when he was a younger guy, and and you know, getting that performance bug there, and then kind of transitioning over into comedy because he, you know, he was a he was a performer, but then uh, 
But then, you know, it was determined that he was funnier than he was talented. And, <laughs> and then he was talented, funny, and, you know, right. uh, it, it just, that's how it worked out. And mm-hmm. I, I, I definitely enjoyed um, him giving us insight into how that all uh, transpired and transitioned. And, you know, for for a kid, for me, a kid growing up in Maine, parents who grew up in Maine, grandparents who grew up in Maine, great-grandparents who grew up in Maine, like, that's very relatable to me. Um, his his voice, his stories, his his uh, viewpoints on on the, this area, kind of interesting because I think it's unique to this area. Yeah, and and I, I can't imagine. I mean, you're from Chicago. I don't know if there's like an like an like an, an Illinois or a Midwestern sort of humorist out there that is comparable. I don't I don't know. I I. I would assume there is, but I just don't. I just don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe when I go out there in October, I'll, yeah. I'll ask. Yeah, if, I'll uh, ask around. Ask around because it's one of those things. Like, is, is there somebody your parents or your grandparents would listen to that would have been, you know, comparable to that to that main humor? Because there's definitely people, you know, Tim. You know, actually, you, you could you could almost say like Bob Marley, and then and then going back, Tim, and then going back. Uh, we mentioned the name Joe Param, and he mentioned the name Marshall Dodge, and like there's other people right. along the way throughout the. Fuck, I don't know, 1900s that yeah. <laughs> would have would have kind of led that that uh, that timeline, that trajectory towards where we are today. Um, you know, in so in so far as main humor, I pause to say, is he the best at it? You know, <laughs> from our perspective, it was you know, it's amazing to see that uh, somebody who has had such a prolific career. Yeah, to uh, see to see someone who's like in, incredibly good at it and like. You know, and and you and I have thought like, oh yeah, we're pretty good at this. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, literally, we've been doing it for a few years. Like, we're not the worst. I mean, but sometimes we're like, oh yeah, I, I think we're doing a good job with it. And then we, <laughs> and then we walk into that, and we're like, oh my god, uh, what, 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 what? No, <laughs> so we should just stop. We should stop now. This is ridiculous. <laughs> we are, have zero talent <laughs> whatsoever. We'll never be any good. <laughs> just sell the microphones. Sell the speakers. <laughs> <laughs> Get rid of all the websites. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. It's it hurts almost. <laughs> no, no, it's good. No, but I mean it comes from, you know, so so many years of hard work. And mm-hmm. and yeah, there's something natural going on there. But it, but it's like it's decades of of work and we see it we see it with how easily yeah. he stepped into a conversation with us and and uh, I mean, not that he was performing per se, but like to 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 hear about the things he's done mm-hmm. uh, and how well he's done them, and for so many years being you know so incredible in 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 the area and and in the country. Yeah, yeah. There's something to be said for for perseverance and just right. you know just plugging away at it and and never giving up and never you know n- not necessarily not taking no for an answer, but being in those moments where it's like I have a chance to say yes to something. Yeah, and 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 I guess you know we've had conversations where where things have come up, and and I'll just say this: you're you're a little more reserved about it than I am. Like, <laughs> you know, we got a show coming up, and it it may or may not be on TV at some point. Right. And my immediate reaction was yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, well, let's let's look them up first. Let's just make sure they're <laughs> not some neo-Nazi group. <laughs> 
it's yeah, not just some point. guy. It's not just some guy with an iPhone. He's like, yeah, I have a, I have a TV station. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's. They have real cameras and they have actual production crew and right. You know, and, but you know, in my mind, like you're in that moment, it's like, oh yes, let's just do it. Let's see what happens. Right. It could be horrible, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be good. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that's a good thing. I think at one point, uh, Tim brought up that like it's not we're not competing against each other right yeah it's all it's all just comedy and uh it's not like oh i want more fame than that person and like we all we all want fame we all want we all want to entertain people yeah. we all want to showcase our our abilities absolutely um and there's an audience for everyone at some point somewhere along the line yeah so even for a silly podcast i recorded my basement yeah exactly yeah there's nothing wrong with this and mm -hmm. you know maybe it'll maybe it'll get somewhere someday but uh <laughs> even if it doesn't like screw it who cares yeah we're having we're having fun and yep. and we're we're showcasing uh our ability to drink beer on a sunday <laughs> afternoon i have actually i'm uh i have vodka tonic oh okay great sorry this is uh <laughs> celebratory celebratory yes it <laughs> was good yeah uh so with that let's uh let's send it off to our interview with tim sample sounds great thanks everyone Okay, one hand and two ducks, three Spock and geese, four Limerick oysters, five corpulent porpoises, six pairs of Don Alvarez, those nickel-plated tweezers, 7,000 Macedonians in full battle array, eight brass monkeys from the ancient sacred crypts of Egypt, nine sympathetic, apathetic, diabetic old men on roller skates of the marked propensity for procrastination and sloth, and ten lyrical, spherical, diabolical denizens of the deep who all stall around the corner of the quivy of the quay at the very same time. Why just say testing one, two, three? After 50 years in show business, can't you think of anything besides testing one, two, three to say? Oh, I'm sorry, Tim. I'll turn on your microphone now. Thank you. Now. Thank you. Uh, that we're not worthy. We're not ready. I gotta refill my coffee. Oh, no problem. Arcing perfectly. Okay. Oh, Jesus. I you think we don't have any problems. I, I think I think we're just gonna dive in in case people don't know. <laughs> okay, let's let's dive in. I'll you want to get your coffee? Yeah, go get your coffee. The coffee's all ready. There's the cream in the the, in the fridge. Nick is gonna stab me in the neck when we leave here now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Go no, ahead and no, get no, your coffee. Okay. We got we got plenty of. You can get your stuff. coffee now, and then we are going to give you coffee later. Or the different kind of coffee. That's all. It's not the kind of coffee you're used to. That's all. It's in a small thing, and you put it in your eyeballs. <laughs> Very funny, <laughs> but your eyeball does not like it. <laughs> we were nervous that uh, uh, you might not be able to perform in such a setting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always been a problem. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, Everything has to be just Just right. so. Yeah, just, just so. so. Yeah, 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 the lighting yeah. and the yeah, exactly. weather, the humidity yeah, and such. Yeah. The <laughs> IV drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Glennon's okay. back, and uh, I just want to say uh, to all the listeners, thanks for tuning in. Uh, that's... Uh, in case you don't know, we're talking to Tim Sample today. Our, our guest has been described as Maine's humorous laureate, uh, said to have been uh, the man who wrote the book on Maine humor. He's performed all over the country, recorded several albums and videos, and his voice is synonymous with this great state of Maine. Uh, thank you, Tim, for joining us on our little podcast. Happy yes. to be here. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, it's amazing to talk to. Uh, we were we were talking before we started recording about uh, your uh, your history, your 40, 50 years or so of uh, well, performance. The first 
the Tim Sample Comedy Album, <laughs> A-L-B-L-U-M, was released on my own label, Elephant's Graveyard Records, a mammoth undertaking, mm -hmm. in 1979, <laughs> produced by Noel Paul Suki from Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yeah. And uh, so that was 42 years ago this year. Does it yeah. feel like just yesterday? You know, it's kind of strange, I got to say, uh, like the guy says, if I knew I was going to live this old, I'd be taking a lot better care of myself. <laughs> but it's, uh, it, 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 the perception of time as you get older, I think, is very strange because on the one hand, it seems to be flying by because a year, if you're 70, a year is a 70th, 170th of your life experience. When you're six, it's one six. It seems right. like longer. Yeah, yeah. good point, good <laughs> but, point. <laughs> but, but the other... But I have these moments that are almost like flashbacks where I feel like, wow, like it was 40 years ago this summer that Marshall Dodge and I toured as Sample and Dodge. I've got a framed uh, the audience section of the newspaper with head of cartoons of us on there. We yeah. were just, we tore the place apart. We just went out. And it seems like, wasn't that just like last summer? Yeah. You know, it just, yeah. that, there are those moments <laughs> when you feel like, holy catfish. <laughs> What have we done? Oh my goodness! Uh, uh, I mean, what was your what's your earliest memory of actually performing? Were, were you that kid? I uh, was that kid. Yeah. I am. I am. Uh, I test positive for uh, comedianitis. Um, <laughs> I was that uh, insecure kid with the appropriate level of learning disability, dysfunctional family, all that other stuff. Yeah. So back in the so I was born in 1951. So. In around 57, 58, around the, I was a six, seven-year-old kid, and it was the era in the 50s of the cocktail party record. Uh -huh. And it was Shelley Berman uh -huh. and Alan, later Alan Sherman and, and these, uh, the Jackie Mason. And these, these uh, some were like Borscht Belt shtick. Shelley Berman was gigantic. He was, he was huge. And, uh, and uh, uh, Tom Lehrer, the Tom Lehrer albums. And so what I... What I had was I could memorize gigantic reams of stuff, and mm -hmm. I loved to do that. I just, I just was a sponge for. So I would memorize the whole album. Ray Stevens had an album called One Thousand Eight Hundred Thirty Seven Seconds of Humor, and I memorized the whole thing. <laughs> Jesus. So wow. what I would do, what I would do, and later I memorized the Firesign Theater, and I memorized, you know, all these things. So as a little kid, so I could do, I could memorize these records that were far more sophisticated linguistically and yeah. and conceptually than a seven-year-old kid. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd, 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 I'd be seven years old, and I'd memorize uh, a Tom Lehrer song that, So long, Mom, I'm off to drop the bomb, so don't wait up for me. And when I roam, I'll come back to my home, although it may be a pile of debris. While we're attacking frontally, watch Brinkley and Hunterly describing contrapuntally the cities we have lost. No need for you to miss a minute of the agonizing Holocaust. So... Imagine a seven-year-old kid <laughs> seven -year -old. at a cocktail party yeah. doing that song for a bunch of middle-class white people. Walking around with a hat. Yeah, yeah. And so I did all that. But the thing was, and so I remember that. And like every full-time professional yeah. comedian, humorist, whatever you want to call it, you know, some people do it. You know, as a sideline, and many people do it. But for me, when I got that feedback, it was like I knew, I knew 
I was a kid. Yeah. I said, this yeah. is magic. Yeah. This is, you know, and this is what I've, I've taught seminars and I've talked to people about humor and everything else. And, but that's, you know, that anyone, people can learn to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, you can learn to fly a plane or you can learn to do play basketball. Some people, the moment they make the connection, it's yeah. like, this was what I was made to do. And yeah. that's what it was for me. So it was a funny combination of having the basic gift or skill or whatever you want to call it. And then having to hammer out the decades of fine tuning and how does, how do you make this, how do you turn this into a career? Yeah. How do you, how do you express yourself? You know, that's, yeah. that's been ongoing ever since, but it was a wonderful moment for me as a kid. You know, in the fifties were strange times, and it was the nuclear, you know, war hanging over everybody's yeah. head, and Sputnik yeah. going over, and the John Birch Society, and all the rest of it. So this was like a place I could be you doing felt something, and I could feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So uh, did you did you immediately drop out of school at seven? And <laughs> I dropped pretty close. I, I uh, as I say, I had. Uh, and it's kind of interesting. I, I, I didn't used to talk about this, but I talk about it every once in a while now. So I was 10 years old, and I had a very serious head injury. Huh. I was a, a, a little kid playing on the playground after school, and they had these great big swings with the, with, with the chains on them. And I, I guess I, I have amnesia over this, the, this actual event, but uh, the chain broke, and I fell on my head. Oh, wow. And I, and I was, uh, had a very bad closed head injury. And... Uh, was in a coma. They induced a coma. I was in a main med for two or three weeks. They told my mother I might not survive, blah, wow. blah, 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 blah. And wow. I came out of it with very rare to, to have total amnesia, but I had total amnesia mm-hmm. of a chunk of several weeks. I had been sitting up talking to people, but no idea. Wow. You know, nobody had the pause button was on. It wasn't in yeah. the record. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was really strange. So I came out of that. I now understand all these decades later. I came to the other side of that with something called nonverbal learning disorder, which the primary cause of it, it's a mild autism spectrum disorder. And it is mostly, most often, it happens to a lot of different people for different reasons, but the most common reason is a massive closed head injury mm-hmm. when you're a kid. Yeah. So what happened, if you, look at a, if you look at a CAT scan on my head, I have this about a 50 cent piece size chunk that's just blacked out, you know, like a magic marker. And what happened was, you know, the the brain is phenomenally plastic and resilient. So what happened was the brain rewired itself, but not to factory specs. So, (laughs) so, so what happens with what NLD, typical NLD kids or people, adults, anybody with NLD, one of the things that we do, one of the, if you look it up and read about it, Mm -hmm. is that because the wiring was rewired in a non-traditional way, typically NLD people can make blazingly fast associations between seemingly disparate subjects. <laughs> yeah. This is to this as that is to that. And that's a phenomenal skill in stand-up. Sure. Because absolutely. if you're saying, hey, have you ever seen this? Look at that. And people say, geez, oh, now yeah. that I see it, I can't forget uh-huh. it, but right. I never yeah. saw that that way before. So there's that, and there's also this uh, disability when it comes to very linear plotting. So I was the kid in the math class yep. in high school that scored astronomically high on aptitude tests, 
and did very poorly in class. Mm -hmm. One of the things I could do back then was I'd be daydreaming in class, I'd be bored, and the and one day the algebra teacher said, Tim, what's the answer to that equation? Just sort of to yeah. give me a raft yeah. of that. <laughs> and I looked up and I said, you know, 1.2 or something. It yeah. was the right answer. I just glanced at it. Oh, wow. And he said, how'd you get the answer? I, I don't know. And uh, he yeah. thought I was being a smart ass. Well, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I wasn't. I just got you, it you because at, yeah. I have the, because my brain's wired up differently. So, <laughs> but I struggled with that really seriously. I dropped out of high school when I was 16 years old. I was thrown out of another high school. I left home. I traveled around. I was uh, had suicidal ideation as a teenager because I couldn't. Right. I couldn't make it work. How can I be smart and fail? And of course, back in those days, if you if you tested high, yeah. did poorly, there's only one answer: you're lazy. Yeah. And of course, kids with learning disabilities, as I was, often are harder working than all the other kids in the class. You know, sure. it's uh-huh. just, but, but it's not, something isn't right. Yeah, it doesn't fit into the box that they want you to fit so in. So right. this is, you You talk to high-level professional comics, you hear some version of this story. Sure. I swear to God, you just oh, yeah. always do. You always do. So I had that thing, and I, I had a tremendous will to live and to succeed. And what happened was when I stepped out of the family and town culture that I, where I came from, people said, well, you seem very smart. You seem like a nice guy. You yeah. seem talented. You th-. The feedback I got from the world was completely different. Like they were saying, get off of my cloud. And they were saying, oh, here's our cloud. You want to come over here? You know? <laughs> yep. And so that's where, that's, I, I always say, you know, in the same way that, you know, Muhammad Ali is one of my great heroes. And, you know, that that era, you know, the boxing saved a lot of people's lives that came from the background he came from. And mm-hmm. he came because it said, I can do this. I yeah. can, there's a lot of, the, the world is telling me you can't do this and you can't do that. And you can't, you're not going to be a doctor. You're not going to be a lawyer. You're too, too uh, inept to be a fisherman. You can't. <laughs> and I'd say, but I can do this. Yeah, it's can. my trick. Yeah. And so I would just rev up my mind and pop the clutch on my mouth in any setting I possibly could and uh, claw my way around. And I, and I realized when I, by the time I was 19 or 20, 21, I said, the die is cast. This is, I'm going to do something. And that, that, this is, I, I, I was an artist. I, I wrote books. I illustrated books. I did cartoons. I did, I was, I played in rock and roll bands until I figured that was an employment agency for these guys that just wanted to pick up girls. And that, that wasn't working. So, and then I started doing solo and then, and it was actually, I was 25 when I opened at what is now Merrill Auditorium mm-hmm. for Noel Paul Stuckey. Mm-hmm. And of course, you guys are probably too young, but Peter Paul and Mary was gigantic. They were gigantic. They were like the Beatles. We they know were the, name. the top yeah, of yeah. They, were, they They had a bunch of number one hits and they were great. And I was a fan and, and they broke up and Stuckey moved to Maine. And I was like, it was like really like opening for Paul McCartney or something sure. for me. So I opened for Noel and he and I hit it off. We became great pals. And I continued to open as a singer, songwriter, mm-hmm. uh, guitar player. And so I was 25 and I did that. For the next couple of years, I did that. We started an animation studio. I've got a picture back in my office of that. But uh, we were on tour with David Mallett, me and Stu- me, Stuckey. And um, I'm trying to think of his name, but he played a lot of guitar for John Lennon, played on a bunch of Lennon albums. He, he lives over in New Hampshire. Anyway, we, there were all these Caucasian... 
male, young, yeah. acoustic guitar playing singer songwriters, like five of us in a row. And we were on tour. What a show. And, yeah, and Stuckey took me aside. We were playing at the Main State Music Theater at Lakewood back when it was something. And Stuckey took me aside and he said, look, Tim, he was producing a music album for me. And he took me aside and he said, look, you know, this is the way this lineup is. And he said, you, I like your music fine. But I have to tell you, the gift that you have to make people like to walk out and do this thing, it's a much better use of your time in this context and this show. So would you consider just sort of emceeing the thing, doing yeah. five, ten minutes, introducing the other one like oh. that to mix up the thing. That was a watershed moment in yeah. my career because I remember thinking I was, my feelings were hurt. <laughs> I was. Right, I really? thought, you don't like me as well as Mallet or you don't yeah. like anything like that. Yeah. But then I stopped and thought, I've seen the platinum albums. I've seen the number one Billboard hits. I've seen the pictures of uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary backstage with Ed Sullivan and the Beatles at the Royal Albert Hall. And I think maybe this guy knows something he, he about might the have entertainment a, yeah. business. <laughs> so I did that. Yep. And I and that was the big shift. And he was right. And Peter, Paul, and Mary got together again in 78. They were touring in Australia. I was still living in his guest house in Blue Hill. And he came back from a tour and he was up roaming around the recording studio and i had recorded reg bennett who was the engineer for new world uh, media back then was from california and he had a recording studio on a geodesic dome it was 1979 <laughs> and he said why don't you just get a bunch of i'll get some people in and you just do some shtick do yeah. the, you know and i said whatever just for yucks we had like 50 people in the geodesic dome oh, wow. and uh we recorded it i didn't think too much more about it I went back to doing the animation, and Noel came up one morning. He said, "I was in last night. And I listened to this tape, and it's you doing stand up. It's great. What are you going to do with it?" Oh. And I said, "I don't know." Oh. And he said, "You ought to make a record." I said, "How do I do that?" He oh said, "I'll show God. you." And he 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 put five thousand bucks of his own money into producing my first comedy album. Oh, that's and, that you didn't even know you made. And that I didn't know I had made. But 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 here's the thing. This was just wonderful. And I have hundreds of stories like this. So Stuki and I said, here's this guy. He's worked with everybody. He knows that Dylan comes by, you know, shit like that. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. I could tell stories. But but so we were on reel-to-reel tape machines editing with um, razor blades oh, and geez. tape. Yeah. And so Stuki tells me, he said, you know, Tim, you say, um... A lot on stage. You, you're kind of a placeholder. Um, yeah. I said, no, I don't. I say it once. Okay, just saying. <laughs> like that. The next morning, I came in to edit, and there was a little reel, little mini reels we used to use for radio commercials. And I said, Uh-oh. Tim, listen to this. Yeah. And he had gone through, and he had cut out all the ums and uh. put them all together. <laughs> and I put it like this, and I looped it on, and like this, um, um. Three hours of ums and an hour long recording. Okay, you got it. You got me on that. Yeah, so that was, you know, that was how it really started. uh, That's that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And Marshall Dodge, Mm -hmm. and again, when I was listening to all these comedy albums, 1958 rolls around. I'm seven years old, and this album arrives at my parents' house with the stereo. And it's Bert and I and other stories from down East Maine. Yeah. Because I grew up on the Maine coast and I hear people talking like this. And suddenly, this is the thing I love is comedy albums. And suddenly, it's people talking like how we talk around here. Sure. And I yeah. memorized that one too. And come to find out, so Bobby, 
Brian and Marshall Dodge did the first album, Bert and I and Other Stories from Downey's Maine in 58. Yeah. Next year, 59, they did uh, more Bert and I, and that was pretty successful too. The first one just took off like a rocket. But they got some pushback because neither one of these guys was originally from Maine. Uh-oh. And the main, you know, people were like, well, wait a minute, you know, what mm-hmm. about this? So they were wonderful guys and deep appreciators of sure. Maine. And so what they made up the third recording on the Burt and I label was called A Maine Pot Hellion. And they went and they found all these Maine storytellers and they recorded them. And one of them was my uncle Stevie Graham. Huh. Now, Stevie Graham, my mother's only brother, was a barber in Brooklyn, Maine, yeah. who used to cut E.B. White's hair for oh, 25 <laughs> years. And believe me, he wasn't much of a barber. I would say he was, a, he was the barber, he was the head of the volunteer fire department, he was the town drunk, and he was a great storyteller. And E.B. White wrote two essays about my uncle in okay. New Yorker. But, but the point was, someone I knew, my uncle, right. had been on a record and that was i can't even see because when you're a kid this i was always fascinated i'd look around and i'd see i was on tv when i was about eight years old they used to have these kiddie shows you know there was uh i can't remember the guy's name now but you know they have these after school kid shows and the cub scouts go sit there and they'd play country music and stuff like that i like a captain kangaroo yeah like that like that kind of thing and and i can't remember uh uh i'll think of his name uh, uh, Cliff Reynolds. Chris, Cliff Reynolds was the host of this one. And I was just a little kid, but we were in a TV studio. I see the cameras. Yeah. I see the monitors. This is me. Just <laughs> like with the record. I said, this is where I want to spend my life, oh, in a wow. TV studio and like that. So that experience of having my Uncle Steve on a record, mm-hmm. and it was really funny. Years later, I met Marshall Dodge in the 70s, and I had the Dubious Brothers was my band. We, we, I'd say, we, 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 when we played in Old Orchard Beach, they call us the Dubois Brothers. They, they still give us the uh, $50. I think it's thirty-seven ninety American. But anyway, but we, I had the Dubious Brothers, and we did a lot of funny songs and stuff like that. And Marshall loved us, and he asked me to be on the board of directors of the first main festival. And that's how I met Marshall. And of course, I was in awe of Marshall, like yeah. everybody else. But I was too scared to say anything or do it i just knew him and i didn't even want to say i was interested in comedy or like that but stookie and i we were me and stookie were we were always uh, writing scripts for movies that never got made <laughs> and meeting with and meeting with all these uh interesting uh, actors a bit actors and famous actors had gone over the top and all this other kind of stuff and none of that ever happened but we had a lot of, we drove endless hours just talking about these movies that we never made and so one <laughs> we were working on one of these movies and stookie and marshall this was 1980 uh, noel and marshall were doing a show at the west end at uh, Munjoy hill for mm-hmm. the Na- neighborhood association and we it, and noel said i was living in palmyra he said i'll pick you up We'll drive down, we'll talk about the movie. I got this gig to do with Marshall, yeah. and we'll drive home and I'll drop you off. And I said, that sounds good. You can have dinner with me and Marshall. So uh, Marshall and I, uh, so Noel and I go to have dinner at the Hollow Reed. And Alan Karen, who ran for governor a while back, he was the head of the neighborhood. He was a community development guy. He was producing this, and I knew him. Yeah. And so no Stuki and Marshall is there. So Alan said, we got Tim Sample, we got Marshall Dodge. You guys ought to you know, do something yep. tonight together. And I looked at Marshall and he looked at me and said, why not? <laughs> and so I just went up to the show and it was a big show. And 
Marshall and I had never done anything together ever. But what happened that night was just amazing because what Marshall was, Marshall was had an encyclopedic knowledge of the oral tradition Mm -hmm. and and storytelling and, and American humor. And I had an absolutely inexhaustible ability to ad lib anything about anything oh, at man. any time. And yeah. he didn't. He yeah. he was frustrated because he could just go on stage and do his riffs, you know, letter perfect riffs off his records, but he wasn't an ad lib guy. I didn't even know what a set piece was. I just <laughs> literally just cranked it up and spewed it out. And sometimes it was good and sometimes it wasn't. And we just brought the house down. We did for about 15 minutes and no, and we walked off stage. And Marshall was leaving on a round-the-world trip, and he gave me a phone number. He said, book us some gigs. Oh, wow. This was, this right. was in the fall of 1980, and he, came, he was coming back in March or something like that. He said, just with his name. Yeah. So I booked us at the Chocolate Church. I booked yeah. us here mm-hmm. at the Grand in Ellsworth. I don't know, wherever. I just called up and said, this is Tim Sample, Marshall Dodger. Oh, Marshall Dodger. No, we'll do that. Yeah, and on Saturday. Like I said, there's, <laughs> a, there's a cover of a picture of, cartoon of us on the cover of the audience section 1981 and we just went everywhere played at the theater at monmouth we we headlined so i had a kid come up to me a guy come up to me about three years ago after a show i think i was at the sama set or something just doing something and this guy's about six foot five and he has a great big beard and he said mr sample i just want to tell you you were the first live comedian my parents ever let me go see. <laughs> so I said, when was that? And he told me it was the Saturday night at Marshall Dodge and I headlined at the Common Ground Fair in September of 1981. Wow. And he was six years old. Yeah. And it was the biggest crowd. It was 3,000 people, easy. The biggest crowd I'd ever performed for. And we just knocked it out of the ballpark. We were just, we could do no wrong that summer. And of course, you know, Marshall was killed. But uh, I think we did two more shows. And then he left for Hawaii. He died. He was, he was mm. hit by a drunk driver. He was riding his bicycle in Hawaii in January of 1982. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I learned endless amount of stuff. In a practical, so Marshall was the consummate professional. This is why I'm able to be where I am today and do what I do. I had these wonderful mentors. Noah Paul Stuckey, yeah. how many number one hit records? Right. Charles Kuralt, Stephen King. I mean, you go on and on with these people that took me aside and set me down and said, this is the way to do it. And Marshall yeah. told me two things about comedy that completely changed my life. He said, whenever you're on stage doing comedy, he said, I want you to remember the old-fashioned seven-ounce Coca-Cola bottle. I said, what? Huh? He said, you remember those that were green and they were shaped like this? They only had seven ounces of Coca-Cola. I said, yeah. He said, that was the most brilliant stroke of marketing genius in American marketing history. I said, what do you mean? He said, it had about one ounce less Coke than you really wanted. <laughs> and he said, if you drank one, Pretty soon, you wanted to go get another one. Right. He said, if you can remember when you're on stage to leave the audience with just one ounce less than they really wow. wanted, the next time you come to that town, and he said, it's hard mm-hmm. because they're pumped and they're saying, give us more, give us more, give us more. But if you can discipline yourself, yeah. the next time you come to town, they'll all come see you again. If you if you give them that extra five ounces, yeah. 
The next time you come to town, they'll say, yeah, he was good, but we've already seen You've it. seen it all, yeah. That, oh. That's this thing. It's, and he was, it proved to be absolutely correct. And the other and the most brilliant thing over the years I've been told in magazine interviews and different reviews of my stuff, it's people have said I have great comic timing on stage that they, they've accentuated. Oh, you have great. And Marshall took me aside. He said, do you want to know the the gold-plated secret to great comic timing. I said, I'd love to know yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. He <laughs> says, I'm here. it's easy, conceptually, and it's, again, terribly difficult to execute. But this is, this is the way it goes. There's one line. Never, ever, under any circumstances, interrupt them when they are laughing. Ah, yes. He yeah. said, that's what they came to do. If you walk out on stage, Say one line, and they want to laugh for 45 minutes. What the hell business is it of yours? They are doing what they came to do. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. And you know, because yep. you do stand-up, you're up, you want to pump it, you want to crank it. You wanna, yeah. But yeah. if you have the discipline to let it be, what will happen is you'll get this groove going, and they will tell you, because as you know, every audience is different from every oh, other audience. Sure. Yeah. But this audience will tell you, this is how we like it. This is what we like. Uh-huh. We're ready now for another line. And at the end of the night, they'll say, you had brilliant timing. Because it wasn't <laughs> your timing. It, it was, was their timing. It was theirs. Oh, yes. That was hard for me to learn, to, to yeah. let people laugh through a joke, because I'm so crazy nervous. Yeah. I want to get to my next joke, or I'm going to forget what, what's there. Uh, so how do you learn what, what bit to hold back from an audience? Like, when you hold that, mm. you know, that extra that ounce percent, of, yeah. of coke. Well, yeah. what I, you know, this, is, this is where I think we get into the, um, the area of what is craft, and what is professionalism, and what is really sort of metaphysics. It's, it's, you know, what to say and what to leave out, like Bob Seger says, <laughs> you know, what to leave in, what to leave out, is there, there is no logarithm, there is no template, but what you have to do, I, I have said for years, being on stage, doing a monologue is a highly vulnerable place to be, mm-hmm. and it is far more transparent than you think it is. If you have prejudices and uh, condescension about the audience, if you don't like what they're doing, or you, everything you feel is somehow translated mm-hmm. to them. So what you have to do in, in, in answer to your question, what do you, you, know, you know, hold back and what do you leave out? You read the crowd and they will tell you that. But the other thing is, and this is, and I've once sat down and figured out if you add up all the shows I've done in my lifetime, it would be like one show a day for almost five years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows. And something happens, like the way, the analogy I use is you take a, a brilliant basketball player, like in my day was Michael Jordan, that you do these extraordinary things. He's not thinking about what he's doing. He's uh-huh. practiced a million times. He's played a bunch right. of games. But when he's actually in the game, yeah. he's just, it's like, like okay, let me give you an example. <laughs> so I was doing a show, I don't know, 20 years ago now, someplace in Massachusetts, and it was a big auditorium, maybe eight, 900 people, and it was sold out. And it was right around the peak of my, when I was really 
selling a ton of records and doing a lot of touring. And this woman from the local paper had arranged to interview me, asked if she could interview me in the green room between sets. You know, I did, yeah. I do do 45 minutes, take 20 minutes and come back and do another 45 minutes or whatever I did. And she came back and she said, wow, that's a, wow, this is amazing stuff. This great <laughs> stuff you're doing. But she said, you did something that I've always heard is, is not professional for a comedian. Oh, okay. I said, what's okay. that? And she said, well, you laughed at your own joke. <laughs> I told a joke. And I said, I'm sorry, it's the first time I heard it. And it, <laughs> and it was. I was just like off, you know, shingling yep. three feet over the edge of the roof in the fog, and something happened. But to me, that sense, that gift or that innate sense, honed over many years of performances tells you it's time to like i will always write out a set list last night i wrote out a yeah. set list i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna do that half the stuff on the set list i didn't do i did some other stuff that wasn't on the set list because i was actually in the moment reading the audience and that's actually how you can tell okay. a neophyte or a, a not a pro public speaker sure. from you know the I, i've spoken at more annual meetings of more corporations than I can possibly even enumerate, you know. <laughs> yeah. And these, a lot of times, these are like this is like the president of American Express Corporation or the president of Unum Insurance or something. These are big time people sure. that, that do a lot of public speaking, but this is what they do. They stay up in the hotel room for a couple of days. They hammer out their remarks. They edit them. They get the, the, everything just right like this, including the jokes and everything else. Right. And then they plod through what they've written <laughs> with okay. no sense of whether this is hitting yep. anybody or connecting with anybody. Right. And <laughs> you can't do that if you're, you know, and you also can't, you know, this, what I love, I find monologues and, and humor very humbling. Because just because they laughed at it last night, oh yeah, that doesn't yeah. Have, that doesn't you know don't belabor the point. You can't afford to say that you idiots. You should have seen what they did I mean, last night. I was in Boston. They loved it. What is wrong with you? you yeah, you know you have to understand that. And I say to people, I say, well, how do you know if something's funny? Because I find it hard to write books and write scripts and write things in the abstract when I don't have because right. people say. You know, I want to be a comedian. I thought that's an easy way to find out. Because <laughs> you don't have to wait for the reviews for a week. Yeah, exactly. It comes right in. It's instantaneous. But, <laughs> but you, you learn that. Um, you learn that sense. And also, you know, part of, like when you say, afraid you'll forget what's coming on like this. I remember I was about, I think I was doing my fourth. Um, so I was, I, I was, I had recorded like three albums. And the, my third album I did uh, the Tim Sample comedy album. I did How to Talk Yankee with mm -hmm. Bob Bryan after after Marshall Dodge was killed. That was the album that Marshall and I probably would have done. It was my first album for Bert and I. Then I did Down East Stand Up, which had uh, Saturday Night at Moody's Diner, and that was a gigantic yeah. hit. And then I was working on Back in Spite of Popular Demand or something. I was working on the for <laughs> for the for the next album. And I suddenly, you know, I, I realized I was in my early 30s and I was making these albums every year or two. Yeah. And I got freaked out thinking. Where am I going to get my material? Where, how am I going to keep this up? How am I, where's it going to come from? I just got insecure. And then I kind of had a, a, a 
epiphany or I, I, I sorted my way through it and it dawned on me, I don't know where it comes from, but I'm just good at this. Yeah. And something will happen. And I'm, I'm, I, I stop being so self-conscious because one of the things that crushes careers, and you see it all the time and any kind of public life, you know, success, money, you know, I, made, I went from making $10,000 a year to making $100,000 a year in one year. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And things like that. And that suddenly it was different. You know, I was going places and then, you know, Bill Cohen would come up and say how much he liked my stuff or somebody else or, or Steve King, or they they were all like fans of my stuff. And I thought that was very disorienting. (laughs) And, and it, if you take your, you know, the, it sounds kind of corny, I guess. But the the secret of long term success, in my view, especially in this business, is don't take yourself so seriously. Literally, don't take. You're going to have good nights. You're going to have bad nights. And it's not, it's not up to you to do everything perfectly. If you did that, you'd be the first person on the planet that ever did. Sure. Leave it alone. Let go of it. Let. And this is where working in this dialect storytelling tradition that I work in. I gained a lot from these old characters that I grew up around. So I'm a little kid in the 50s on the coast of Maine. My dad had a shipyard. And there were these old characters who would, mm-hmm. who would work at the yards. And they would just hang around at the yards. And literally, so 1960, I was nine years old. And there were guys that worked at my dad's yard who were in their 80s. Oh, wow. That were doing this stuff called spinning oakum, where they make this caulking material for wooden decks of boats and stuff. But they, they just hung around and did this because, yeah. you know, with one arm as long as the other because they had nothing else to do. <laughs> and, and, but I, it, years later, I realized these guys were born in the 1880s, yeah. 1885, 1888. And they were old, wisdom guys. They had great uh, uh, levity about their... They're, they had a wonderful dry sense of humor, but they had something else. And I, and I realize now how much of an anchor it was for me. Yeah. So this is the Cold War. This is Sputnik. This is jumping onto your desks <laughs> and the, the, we're all going to be wiped out. And, you know, I can tell you funny stories about my, my family was going to have a, a, a bomb shelter and all it was was it was a walk-in freezer that was disused in my basement with a big lock oh. on it. You pr- probably die in about a day from you would just suffocate in there with some canned beans or something. <laughs> it just wasn't a very good plan. <laughs> it was, it was all better this, off outside in the nuclear. There fallout. was all yeah. this stuff going on in the zeitgeist, but these old characters. Mm. So I I talked about this on stage, and I said if I walked up, there were three or four of these guys sitting around. And I ran up to them as a little kid and said, there's a car on fire down on Townsend Avenue. You know what they'd say? Nothing. (laughs) For about three minutes. And then one of them would slowly turn to the other one and say, now, wasn't there a car on fire back in 31 down there? Whatever happened to that car? You know, and the message was... It's all going to be okay. It's all, you know, there's war and death and destruction and people come and people go and you have successful years and you have bad years and it's all rock and roll. And that wasn't, that wasn't a theory. That was lived experience that came off of them like in waves. And it made me feel better. It was somebody who wasn't freaked out and wasn't thinking, you know, they, they just had this calm and part of the calm was uh the humor yeah and it was this uh you know uh, 
well, you could go this way, or you could go that way. And well, does it make any difference which way I go? Not to me, it don't. You know, it's just, it's just that, you know, take it easy. Yeah. Don't take yourself so seriously. Yeah. Somebody's been here before you. Somebody will be here after you. Right, and, right. You know, when Bob Marley started getting very popular, and I had just been, there used to be a whole Tim Sample section at L.L. Beans and all this stuff, and I had 180 stores selling my stuff, and I made plenty of money, and I had plenty, I was on national television, and all this stuff, and then Bob Marley would, was was doing good, I think Bob's great, and I like him, but he was like the new kid on the market, and people say, do you know Bob Marley? And I'd say, I used to be Bob Marley. <laughs> Have you met Bob? Are you friends oh, with yeah, Bob? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did an interview for his podcast, and he's and you know it's interesting because another part of the entertainment business that I had to learn the hardest way. Everything I know, I learned the hardest way possible. Is <laughs> you know you have to be tremendously ambitious to get where I got and do what I did and make. You know, I made several million dollars. I sold tons and tons of books and records and did all kinds of television, all this other kind of jazz. But I. A lot of those early years, I kind of regret the fact that I thought everybody was competition. Oh, I oh, thought everybody, yeah. I had to be number one and like that. I don't feel that way at all. I mean, that's a dumb idea. It's a really dumb idea. And in point of fact, I, I am a big fan of the Beatles, and I watched that uh, um, Rick Rubin uh, thing mm-hmm. with, the, yeah. with the McCartney. And, you know, they're talking about it, you know. There's no two comics exactly alike. There's no two entertainers exactly alike. It's not everybody. You know, once in a while, it's head to head. It's, you know, somebody's getting the part and you're not getting the part and all that. But it's much more, you know, people say, oh, it's you or it's Bob. That's like the the Rolling Stones and the Beatles used to play up their supposed, you know, feud. (laughs) Like, because it was good for business. They sold a lot of records for both of them. the names in the paper. But now I understand that. You know what goes around comes around, and I work with more and more people. And I and I, I guess what it is is to do stand-up comedy. I believe you have to have a level of insecurity that is incomprehensible <laughs> to a normal person. Sure. You have to have thousands of people say, "Tim, you're so great. Oh, you're fabulous. I just love you." It's like how insecure can you get? But. but but over the years, you know, I've come to to accept. I'm very fortunate. I've had good breaks. I've had some bad years. I've had some terrible things happen that didn't. Eighty six, my career. I mean, I'm, next month I'll be solving twenty five years of uh, continuous sobriety from drugs and alcohol. I don't talk about that a lot, but believe me, in this business, yep. <laughs> forget about it. You know, I've seen a lot of people die. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of people's career. You know crash into the ground but all through the years i've and i've somehow uh been able to learn you know the great thing about stand-up is it's it's a microcosm of life you just get up you throw it up against the wall you see if it sometimes and sometimes telling somebody about bad they say do you ever bomb i said anybody who's done this yeah as long as i have they tell you they don't bomb they are just off the wall (laughs) i have had some just terrible terrible nights and i remember one time i was talking about this one time and it was at a theater that i had sold out two or three times and there were a lot of reasons looking back on it what happened you know that was it was booked at the very last minute it it had been dark and they were opening it up again i don't know there was Mm -hmm. all this stuff that 
I should have known better, but I oh, what the hell? Yeah. And it was hubris. It was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm, don't you know who I am? Yeah. I can sell yeah, the yeah. tickets out and like that. So it was about a, it's a small theater. It was like 250 people or something like that. You know how many people showed up? Ten. Four. Four. <laughs> you, know how, you know how long I did a show? You go an hour? Hour and 15. Jesus. Oh. And they all laughed. I gave them free CDs. And I just said, I just chalked it up. And I said, lesson learned. Yeah. You know, I didn't, it wasn't, that wasn't a referendum. Am I any good or am I not any good? That was, that, that, that's what happened that night. Another night that this was, this turned out to be great. I was at the uh, Mystic Connecticut when they had the, um, they had just opened the Sequarium, the big Sequarium uh-huh. there. And I was doing a fancy black tie dinner for the Heart Association or something national, big national thing. And fancy stuff for all the people that had, donated over a gazillion dollars to the thing. And so the way it worked out was I was doing my show from the podium. There's a big uh, killer whale exhibit thing inside, (laughs) indoors, Uh with seating like this, with kind of like that IMAX seating where everybody's like right up here like this. And I was standing kind of on the little platform that the trainer feeds the killer wheel from and oh, like geez. that yeah so i start <laughs> off and i welcome everybody and i start into my monologue and suddenly there's this like it sounds like an explosion behind me and the entire audience is drenched with water <laughs> and what happened was the keeper of the thing forgot to close the door where the killer whale is outside and he comes in for the shows and he saw this guy standing up there and he's thinking, food? I want some food. <laughs> and he jumps up and he smashes down and, and the water goes. And, and it was right at the beginning of my show and I was on for another hour oh, man. and 20 and minutes. And you can't talk that <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. Only lost one leg. But otherwise, I, but I made it through the show. <laughs> Did you did you get wet? <laughs> I got soaking wet, but from behind. Oh jeez! <laughs> but they wrote it up in the whatever the uh, the uh, new local newspaper gave me a rave review. Said this guy's a real pro. He's a trooper. <laughs> Even a killer whale can't stop this guy. <laughs> yeah, but that that pales in comparison to what you'd seen leading up to that. I'm sure there's yeah. been plenty of other oh, times yeah. where. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, there's plenty. You know, <laughs> I was doing a show. Oh, I mean, they're just I could talk about this stuff all day. There's one time I was doing an outdoor show. At, and it was a, a, a festival or a fair. And those are very, you know, talk about not being able to control the environment, mm, you know. Yep. So it was blisteringly hot. It was like 100 degrees. And there was bands and there was a bunch of people. And there were a lot of people there. But but there was a copse of trees uh, maybe 150 yards over here. There might have been 600 people at the event. They were all... 150 yards away under the tops of trees. <laughs> it's one thing if you're playing Proud Mary three times fast, but it's another thing if you're trying to capture. But, but another time I was at, uh, I was the headliner at the, um, at the uh, 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 Freiburg Fair. Mm-hmm. And I had done a show over in New Hampshire. I used to do, in those days, I would do five or six shows in a row. And this was the last show of, you know, I'd been over in New Hampshire and Vermont doing these one-night shows, and I was the headliner. And at these big uh, fairs at the fairgrounds, you're in a you're in a little box in the infield kind of thing, facing the grandstands. And then when the weather is nice, everybody brings their chairs and they they spill out from the grandstand and they come out to the edge of your space. Well, it was torrential rain, <laughs> and there were 
over 2,000 people there, like 2,500 people. But the rain was so heavy. It was, again, 100 yards. So I'm here. <laughs> yeah. There's 2,500 people sitting in the bleachers. I can't see them. Oh, jeez. I can't hear them. Uh, I know they're there. Yeah. It's a lot like television. <laughs> and I've got two hours oh, to do. No. Two hours, basically. <laughs> and you know what happened? It was so great. Four or five teenage kids came out and stood at the edge of the stage yeah. area and watched the whole show oh, nice. in the nice. rain. <laughs> and I did the whole show. For those five kids, That's and I great. could I could hear the the audience at the, 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 once in a while laughing really hard. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> hear it float over oh, to you. Man. That's nice. No such thing as a bad show, huh? <laughs> well, no, and you you know it's 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 that's why I say it's like a analogy for life. There's you have good days and bad days, that's and true. you have and and you have to understand. I think for me, what I came to understand and why I love what I do, I had to stop. Uh, thinking of, I had to get over the insecurity. I had to stop thinking every show and every gig and every book and every record and everything that I did and every ad I did and every whatever was a referendum on whether I'm okay mm -hmm. and whether. And then that that's you know again people don't talk about it, but I know enough professionals to know. I mean, I remember Stephen King is a very good friend of mine. He's a wonderful guy. Just, you know, you couldn't find a better template of how to handle, you know, rich and famous. But I remember many, many years ago, he had done, The Stand became a, a it's, mm -hmm. I can't, I've lost track of how many adaptations of all his books and stuff. But this was back in the 90s. And uh, Steve, I knew Steve was really, he loves that book and he, he, it was a pet project and he doesn't always have his hands in it in a hands-on way, but he did with this one yeah. and we had talked about it and stuff. And I knew it was going to be, it was before streaming, it was broadcast and it yeah. was going to be on CBS or something. Yeah. And right. I called him up, I don't know, half an hour before the show, 20 minutes before the show started. And I said, you know, kind of good luck. And I said, he said, you're gonna watch it, right? And I, and I said, yeah. And he said, well, a lot of my so-called friends say they're gonna watch it. <laughs> he was just like really nervous about, you know. And I thought, you know, he's Steve King. But, yeah, you know, yeah. What does he have to be nervous about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It'll be fine. Yeah. You can't just say, I'll just, I'll catch it on Netflix. Like, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you were uh, on uh, CBS Sunday Morning Show, yeah. uh, Postcards from Maine. Oh. Gosh. I want to hear about that and what that was, that was like. Just wonderful. So it was 1993, and uh, I had an office in Bath, Maine. And I, I have to preface this by saying I had always been a big fan of Charles Corral. Mm -hmm. I was doing a show. I remember vividly. I don't always remember all this stuff, but I was doing a show in Traverse City, Michigan on a Saturday night. And the only time, I don't watch a lot of television, but when I would watch television, would be if I did a show on a Saturday night, woke up in a hotel room, got coffee or room service, I'd flick on the TV. Yeah. And I flicked on the TV. I remember it being in Traverse City, Michigan. And here comes Charles in yeah. his rumpled blazer. He <laughs> said, well, we have a new kind of show for you now. It's a, it's a show about America. And it's a this and it's a that. And we think we're going to have, he had this drawing table. I thought, Jesus, whatever this is, it's going to be great. You know? <laughs> and that was the first CBS Sunday morning, and mm -hmm. I watched it on and off. So fast forward to 1993, and the phone rings, 
And my assistant says, it's Charles Kuralt on the phone. I said, right, I'm sure. You know, I, I have friends that can talk in funny voices, yeah. and somebody's pulling my leg. Well, it was Charles. And he wanted to know if he could interview me for a book he was writing, Charles Kuralt's America. And naturally, I said, gee, Chuck, I'm busy. Maybe another time. I'm <laughs> but I was really a big fan. And he met me in the parking lot in Bath. I was living in Bath at the time. We sat and talked for a couple of hours. He was just a wonderful, wonderful human being and a really talented TV guy. He was the network news anchor at CBS before Walter Cronkite. Oh, People don't even remember oh, that. Right. He was like 24 when he was the network news anchor. He was an wow. amazing guy. So anyway, we talked. Yeah. He interviews me. But what he's really doing is interviewing me for CBS News Sunday morning. Oh. We step outside the door, took a couple of pictures. He reaches in his pocket. He lights up a Paul Mall and says, <laughs> I don't suppose you'd consider coming to work for me at CBS News. <laughs> and I said, I think I can work it into my busy schedule. <laughs> I said, well, that's great. That's great. We'll have somebody. So I get a letter no from the from uh, uh, Missy Rennie was the head of Weekend News and welcome to the CBS family. And then, so I'm just, and I was talking to Steve a lot about this because at the time Dave Barry had a show on, Steve and Dave are good friends. And mm-hmm. anyway, and I was like telling Steve, I can't believe it. He said, you'll get it. No problem like that. What he said was, he said, you'll get it. And then once you work for them, you'll be calling me up bitching because they don't pay you on time, <laughs> which turned out to be true. But that's another story. But so, um, so I, I get this um, letter and they, and they set up a couple of audition things, you know, a couple of stories. And, and he said, we'll send a crew up like that. Well, so I've been working in television for a while and I hosted. So you think, you know, Maine, I had my own weekly show. I had done by that time, good morning America and, mm-hmm. and, uh, the today show and some of these other things. So I knew a little, I knew about television and sure. most of the time tech people, the sound man and the camera people are they're not obsequious, but they're somewhat deferential. They go, oh, Mr. Sample, we had put this here yeah. like this and like this. So I show up at La Garage in Wiscasset to meet with my producer, Mary Lou Teal, and the, and the crew. Well, the crew is these older guys, and, and one of them is positively obnoxious. He's, <laughs> uh, he's Izzy Blackman is his name, and it's like... Uh, we get out on the set the next day. We get out on location, and he's like, "Do this, don't do that. Shut up, do this. Move over here. What the hell's wrong with you? Charles would do it this way. All this kind of stuff." And wow. it took me a, 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 and it turned out this guy was Isidore Blackman, who's in the Journalism Hall of Fame. He spent he and Larry Gianneschi were the camera and sound guys that did 20 years of On the Road with Charles Kuralt. Wow. Yeah. Izzy Blackman is in the Journalism Hall of Fame because <laughs> I can tell you the whole story, but yeah. the, the punchline is he shot the footage of Jack Ruby shooting Lee Harvey Oswald. No kidding. Yeah, like that. Wow. So he's like this big deal guy, yeah. and he had to put me through my paces. Sure. And then eventually <laughs> I passed his audition. Yeah. I passed the audition for CBS, yeah. and my first piece aired in October of 93. And I did a hundred pieces over that, and with an average audience of like two, three, four million people Incredible. all over the world, it was just an amazing gig. Yeah. But it took me a while to win Izzy's confidence. <laughs> and, <laughs> but but that incredible. working with Keralt and that was really like playing in the NBA because mm-hmm. it wasn't all humor. It was a lot, but it 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 tapped into the kind of unfeigned affection and empathy that I have for the whole state of Maine. I was, I, I felt deeply honored and mm. to still do. And yeah. pe- people still come. Uh, 
I, I, I was in a, a few years ago, we were in Missoula, Montana. I was turning in a rental car and somebody said, are you the guy from Maine? That's what they say. Are you the guy <laughs> from Maine? Yeah. I said, well, there's a couple of guys up there, but uh, <laughs> they sent me out for a quarter milk. But, but you know, that yeah. had that ability. And, and also I learned everybody on the production crew, everything that went out over the year. There, there's six or seven minute pieces. We'd shoot an average of between 50 and 20 hours of mm. footage to get six or seven minutes. Wow, it would really? cost $100,000 per piece to put them on the air by the time the smoke cleared. I was out one time. I had done a piece on black flies, and I was traveling. My wife's from Minnesota. I was out in Minnesota, and I got a call from my producer, and she said, we have to change a line before this airs on Sunday. Yeah. We, it is an audio line that needs to be re-cut uh, or yeah. a couple of lines. And I commandeered WCCO in Minneapolis, <laughs> and they, they, it's the network, and it's just like they opened the doors, That's, I went in, they wow. got they booked the satellite time, I did the, the, you know, <laughs> did the two lines, they bounced them, it cost 10 grand to bounce them off the satellite back down to West 57. Holy that's cow, like, wow, yeah, really? Then you feel like, that's what I mean about the NBA, you feel yeah. like, okay. All right, I can do whatever I want here. <laughs> that's incredible, that's incredible. We don't want to take too much more of your time, but I, there's something that I I have to ask. Uh, I've been listening to some of these old records. Yeah. I found them at a flea market. There you <laughs> I, go. I, and uh, and uh, so Marshall Dodge and 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 uh, one of yours and Joe Parham. Yeah, Joe Parham, um, wonderful, wonderful guy. Absolutely, I get to see him shortly before he passed. Yeah, uh, up in up in West Paris, um, which was a treat. And uh, I just have to wonder. I have to ask about main humor. And is it is it okay for someone like me, who's a who's a new stand up comedian, to do main humor stories and whatnot, or is that considered stealing, or is it okay to borrow those sort of things and do those on stage? That's a really good question, and the way the best way to answer that, from my perspective, is there's original material mm -hmm. that's written by the performer, yep. and then there are stories that exist in the oral tradition. Mm -hmm. And it would be similar to in folk music. You know, you have the House of the Rising Sun. You have uh, 500 Miles. You have some sto stories and songs and things that are part of this body of work that nobody knows where they came from. And, you know, you, you, you know who wrote this land is my land. This is and so what you have to do is navigate you know, I have had to talk to people who take, you know, like I created the story Saturday night at Moody's Diner. Mm -hmm. I I ad-libbed the whole thing. It's like nine minutes long, uh, live on stage that yeah. night. But it contains a few bits and pieces of, you know, the punchline has been around for a few thousand years. The You know, there's <laughs> this and that. But it's it's put together in a way that the observational stuff about how the creamer works and how the diner is like that's all original to yeah. me so that's my story i own that story but i don't own the punchline and mm -hmm. i don't own so it's a little bit like can you if i were gonna do um the noel stuckey song i dig rock and roll music that peter paul and mary did i would get permission for that mm -hmm. but if i were doing uh 500 miles or you know some of these ones that exist that you just do your own version of that, right? But 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 what I feel is this: it's 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 funny how people parse stuff out, and part of that is is the 
business and yeah. how copyrights are written and stuff like that. I I I did a I used a line uh, in a in a television ad one time. John Gould was a very famous main writer and had published I think Houghton Mifflin Little Brown published his stuff and and he was you know fastest hound dog in the state of Maine and all these other kinds. But I used a line that I assumed was a line from the public domain, sure. kind of the, just what people yeah. say. Yeah. Right, right. Well, John Google called me up and he was ripped and he, you can't oh. say that. Uh-oh. That's mine. I wrote, and I, uh, I, you know, I kissed his ring and genuflected and did all this <laughs> stuff. And I said, I really didn't know. Yeah. But just out of curiosity, I, I found his editor at Little Brown and, and, and and, and I was curious because I thought that line, I've heard that line in other things. And I called the editor and I said, is this John's, is this copy? And the guy laughed right away. He said, oh, John thinks oh, John. because he uses this line <laughs> that he owns the line. He, he owns uh, the story. Yeah. He, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I don't. I don't own, uh, if I notice her turn, I'd let her go first. I don't own that line. That's been around forever. But I do own... If you start at here and you go down and you go down the hill and you go up here and this and that, if somebody tells the whole story the sure. way I did it on the record, I'm going to say, wait a minute, yeah. that's right. not cool. Yeah. Right. But uh, famously, Arlo Guthrie with Alice's Restaurant, when he sold his catalog, <laughs> the only big hit he ever had, well, he did City of New Orleans, but the, the, Alice's Restaurant made a pile of bucks sure. and he sold that. And then he couldn't do it in concert. Because without paying a royalty to somebody else. Somebody else. So yeah. he changed a few words around and rewrote this. <laughs> and now he can do it. So you know, there's a little of that. Yeah. But I tell people, use common sense. Sure. If, if, you're, if you're just riffing uh, and, and, and you run into some of these lines and you're really taking your own observational awareness of Maine and Maine mm-hmm. culture and you're using some of the dialects, some of the colloquialisms, some of the tropes and and constructions that are part of the genre, that's fine. But don't just, you know when you're doing it. And you know when you're just like taking a Marshall Dodge story and just doing it, you know, whole cloth. And and I do that on stage because I've recorded five albums for the Burton Eye Company, but I'll do it once in a while. I'll say, this is a story from the original Burton Eye album. You know, and I've worked with both Marshall and Bobby, and I'm just going to tell this story. And and that's fine, too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Excellent. Great. Great answer. (laughs) <laughs> awesome. Uh, so again, thank you very much. Really uh, want to have respect for your your time. But we like to end the interview with uh, a bit we call uh, "Curse the Darkness." There's there's a saying that goes, uh, "I'd rather light a candle than curse the darkness." So it means like I'd rather do something about my problems and instead of just you know, complaining about them. So uh, in opposition of that, we'd like you to actually. Uh, curse the darkness and and complain about something you don't plan on doing anything. <laughs> you don't plan on doing anything about. Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. My big thing right now is flat out old fashioned crushing ignorance. <laughs> Just stupidity. We're not going to be, you know, nanobots are going to go into your bloodstream if you get back. And, and because Bill Gates invented them and now he's getting a divorce, that you don't know if you're getting Bill's nanobots or his wife's nanobots or what's going to happen. You know, that ignorance and stupidity. I grew up, I grew up 
This is a great art called kvetching. And uh-huh. when I grew up in a world where people are dying of polio, somebody comes out with a shot, and everybody goes, hooray, let's get the polio hooray. shot. <laughs> Climbing over each other let's trying to get this shot. Let's have the march of dimes. <laughs> let's give a dime. And now it's like, I don't know the but what's the percentage? I think point oh 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 one percentage that I might get sick. I don't think I'm going to go in. I don't know. I'm thinking that just drives me insane. Okay, that is the darkness. That is the dark. and the fact that I can get my vaccinations and do the PSAs and wear the mask and do all this stuff and some numbskull someplace <laughs> doesn't get it. So now we have the Delta variant mm-hmm. coming back and I'm thinking, yeah. can we just put them on an island? <laughs> you know? <laughs> anyway, yeah, I don't get me started on that. <laughs> it's very good. When I, when I showed up here, I was slowing down. And uh, I was like, oh, I, I don't know where uh, Tim's place is. And then there he was out front take, taking his trash out. And I was like, oh, thank goodness you were outside. So I know where you are. And he reached in and shook my hand. I was like, oh, I hope he knows I'm vaccinated. Because that was, I don't want to be like, am I the guy who gave Tim a sample of COVID? <laughs> well, I'm all vaccinated. Yeah. And I yeah. feel like, you know, but the other thing is that I was diagnosed in 2004 with leukemia. Uh-huh. And with a kind of leukemia, chronic myelogenous leukemia, which my oncologist later told me that prior to the advent of this medication that I was on called Gleevec, it was not 90%, not 95%, but 100% <laughs> fatal. He said everybody that oh. walked into his waiting room with blood work like mine was dead in a year. Okay. So you're going to be looking long and hard to find somebody who is a bigger fan of medical science Absolutely. than somebody who survived. I took chemo for 13 years, this Gleevec, for 13 years, every single day, 400 milligrams of Gleevec. And, and guess how much a, a 30-day supply of Gleevec costs? Mm, can't oh, imagine. Yeah. 12,000 bucks. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. 12,000 yeah. bucks a month for 13 years. That, uh, I like Obamacare too. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. but, but I am a huge believer in medical science mm-hmm. yeah. and it drives me insane yeah. when people, you know, it, it, it was a, uh, uh, who was it that said, uh, 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 O'Neill, Tip O'Neill said, you, you, you're entitled to your opinion. You're not entitled to your facts. Right. Facts are real yep. things, you know? <laughs> anyway, thank well, you for coming. Thank and thanks you. for having thank me. You. Thank so, you very much. Tim Sample, everyone. Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for coming down. Thank you to Tim Sample. I really appreciate his hospitality and generosity with sharing insights into his involvement in the history of Maine humor. Yes, as a kid growing up in Maine uh, who who had parents and grandparents who listened to him, it was a real treat to... uh, have a conversation with him uh, about the uh, comedy craft. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, the last last two episodes now, I had to deal with trying to figure out the etymology of the different main words. No, I, I agree with you. <laughs> it's been fun watching that process. Uh, it's, yeah, it's been, uh, okay, it's been fun for you to watch me f- try to figure out these words and try to figure out like I'm sort of the, like the Latin origins of these words. Right. And the funny thing is, is like some of them, I'm like, Oh yeah, I, I know that. And there's other ones. It's like, I don't, I don't know what that person said either, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, a real treat, real treat. So thanks to everyone who listened, uh, tell your friends and, uh, please share 
this episode along with the others. This is a good one. Uh, follow us on Comedy Think Tank wherever you can. Uh, be sure to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Find us on Instagram at Comedy Think Tanked, Twitter at Comedy Tanked, and our website, ComedyThinkTanked.com. And please feel free to email us any questions, any suggestions uh, that you can come up with. You can tweet us as well. Uh, at the, but the email is ComedyThinkTanked at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again, everyone. Good day. Music was written and produced by a minor, Ralph Bergfeld. No comedians were hurt in the production of this podcast. All audio snippets of actual funny punchlines were not written or performed by any of us or our subsidiaries. Rather, they are express written bits of professionals we admire. Let the civil actions be filed. Any opinion heard, actual or implied, is that of the comedy think tank producers and their guests. Any slight, Insult, affront, slur, disparaging remark, snub, rebuff, rejection, or spurning, no matter how derogatory, pejorative, or abusive you may feel it is, was not intended, but for comedic, entertaining purposes only. Thanks for listening. Holy (laughs) shit. (laughs) When he started talking, I was like... I don't want to. I don't want to say anything. I don't even want to laugh. I don't want to make any noise on the microphone because whatever's happening right now, I just want to stare it's at it. Fucking amazing. <laughs> that that's that's one of the that's one of the troubles, right? Is is you watch that and you're going like, I'm fucking shit. <laughs> right, Val. For all the times we've been the shitty shows and we were like, yeah, Nick, I think we're I think we're pretty good. Yeah, Leonard, we're good. We're good. And then. <laughs> And then you watch that and you're like, and like I got oh, nothing. I don't, I don't even know why. Why are we here? What? I quit. Fucking sell these microphones. Yep. Sell everything. <laughs> sell it all. I'm going to go just work my regular job. Yeah. I'm going to be happy that I had a chance. I had like, f- I had 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. I'm going to get myself a new tie. I'll mm-hmm. be, I'll, I'll be at work. I'm sir. good. No. I'll be at work and I'm just going to, I'm going to work really hard and, and try to earn, <laughs> you know, $85,000 a year someday uh-huh. and call it good. <laughs> I'm good. And I'm we're fine. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. It's all right. All done. I get it. <laughs> No, no.